Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things I want you to speak confidently, so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factitious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Yes, for those of you that were wondering, we're still in Romans. We have progressed to chapter 4. So if you can turn to Romans chapter 4, we'll all be on the same page. Last few weeks, we've been talking about the promises God has for us and how we can trust the promises God has for us because God is the one making the promises. We said that the other option is for you to try to do good works so that God will fulfill his promises because you're a good person. And we said that was going to be difficult to do. Keeping the law and doing good moral actions will not secure the promises of God. <clears throat> the promises of God, based upon you doing something, is not a promise. Matter of fact, it leads to chaos. Woodrow Wilson, the president that was named after my high school, <clears throat> was president, and he was very well known for taking historical events and applying them to his situation. And one time he declared that nobody could defeat Alexander Hamilton, whether he was in office, in office or not. He alone had a constructive program, and either you submit to his program or you submit to chaos. You submit to his program, or you submit to chaos. This is the same thing that we are given the options of. Either we try to get to heaven by doing what we think is right, the golden rule, or keeping some list of things, or going to church, or doing uh, the Lord's Supper, or we do, do, or we do. And we think that will lead us to the promises that God gives us when exactly the opposite occurs. 
it leads to more chaos. Because nobody knows if you've done enough to earn God's promises. And then if you do, quote unquote, enough good works, then that puts God in your debt. And then God's no longer God. So we have a problem. And if we try to do something to earn salvation, we do nothing but mess up things royal and make more chaos. Romans chapter 4, verse 16. <clears throat> For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now, first thing I want you to notice is the word grace. We haven't had that in Romans, except in the first chapter early on. Now we have grace, which really has been missing from the argument Paul's been making, but he's been leading up to this point. So, we now have grace. Look at the uh, beginning of the verse, 16. For this reason, it is by faith. It is by faith. What makes the work of the gospel a message certain? A certainty. What makes the work of the gospel message a certainty? <clears throat> Number one, the believer has trust in the promises of God. The believer has trust in the promises of God. In other words, you place your faith in the promises of God. You, pray, you place your trust in the promises of God. We, we believe that God has the power to make promises and to keep those promises so that our life will not be chaos, but that it will be based upon the promises of God. God can do what he promises. And we believe by Faith, faith alone. Uh, Paul doesn't go back and restate the promise. We've got to go back in the context, come up with the idea of what the promise is talking about. But it could be talking about the inheritance. It could be talking about the gospel message. It could be talking about a number of things. But all of them, I think, are implied by Paul. All the promises of God are attained by faith. Faith. The promise comes out of faith so that it can be according to the grace of God. Faith in the grace of God. God planned the best way to secure salvation for a sinner, and it's by faith. One pastor put it this way, quote, Faith is helplessness reaching out in total dependence upon God. I like that. Let me read it again. Quote, Faith is helplessness reaching out in total dependence upon God. <clears throat> Your faith is essential, but the reason it's essential is not because of the faith itself, but because of the condition of the heart needing corresponding to grace. Grace and faith go together. Grace and faith go together. Uh, on Fridays, I try to get someplace. Um, I, I, I go someplace. I go someplace every Friday, Okay. I take my notes and a pen, and I have all my pages of notes for the sermon on Sunday, and I do my first cut. 
Okay? Which, which means this week it was uh, uh, 65 pages. I had to cut down 65 pages. And so I got someplace, and I got to a park, and it was quiet. And it was okay. I was okay. It was quiet. And I was able to concentrate. And the only thing I could hear was this dog in the background. He sounded like three, four, five blocks away, but I could hear him. And the interesting thing is, he was making noise. And the only way I knew he was making noise is because I had ears. If I had ears and he was not making noise, I wouldn't have heard him. Or if he was making noise and I didn't have ears, I wouldn't hear him. Same thing. Grace and faith. Grace and faith. You cannot say that because of your faith, God fulfills promises. Your faith is connected to God's grace. So your faith has to have God's grace. If it does not have God's grace, you cannot have faith. It's like a dog barking and you not having ears to hear it. If you think you believe and somehow by your believing you twist God's arm into keeping his promises, that's not it. Your faith is based upon the grace of God. The grace of God is his loving goodness that gives you blessings. In other words, it's his loving goodness that fulfills his promises. And you, with your faith, trust his promises. Therefore, that means you rely upon his grace. So your faith is based upon grace. The promises are based upon grace. And the promises are based upon your faith. You believe because of the grace of God. You believe the promises because of the grace of God. And with this, God gets the glory. God gets the glory. Salvation is completely upon faith in order that on God's side, he might be doing a work of grace. Faith enables trust to be in the smallest or the biggest promise that God can make. Abraham's faith was not in what he had, but in what God promised him. And his faith was based upon the grace of God. Galatians 3.22, Scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Did you hear that? That was great. Galatians 3.22, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. All three things go together. But your faith is based upon the grace of God. The grace of God affects your faith. Your faith is based upon the promise of God. And you are saved. You are saved. Second. What makes the work of the gospel message a certainty? Second phrase in verse 16. In order that it may be in accordance with grace. In order in order that it may be in accordance with grace. Number two, the believer has the grace of God 
that glorifies God and justifies the believer. <clears throat> the grace of God, the goodness of God, the love of God gives to you the grace and faith that glorifies God and justifies the, believer, the sinner. So you are justified because of the grace of God and you place your faith in the justification of God, uh, justification of the sinner, uh, yourself. So you believe because of the grace of God. And the grace of God then gives the glory to the person that does the good moral works. No. Boo. Hiss. Okay, no. You give the glory to the one who gives you the grace. That's God. And he gets the glory. And the sinner is justified by the grace of God. So you place your faith in justification because God is gracious to you. Grace gives you the guarantee to all the promises that God gives you. Anything you find in the Bible that's a promise, you believe it because of the grace of God. The grace gives God glory and gives, allows the believer the source of every single blessing that's recorded in the Bible. The promise of God is given by grace and accepted by faith. Notice the middle phrase of verse 16. So that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants. So the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants. What is the third point here? What makes the work of the gospel message a certainty? Number three, the believer has confidence in the promises of God. The believer has confidence in the promises of God. So you can look at the Bible and you can find a promise, and you can go, this is an incredible, unbelievable promise. But you believe it. You don't know how God kind of do it, but you believe it. You believe it because your faith is in the grace of God and the promise of God, and the promise of God will fulfill whatever he tells you is going to happen. And you believe and trust in the confidence, in confidence in the promises. The promise of God is sure for all who have faith in God. If you try to do good things to earn your way to heaven, you will never be certain. <clears throat> I know one, <clears throat> one church denomination that believes in doing good things. And I asked the question, what happens if the person sins the day before he dies? And I got this answer that didn't make any sense. Well, he may go to heaven or he may not go to heaven. Because they believe in works in order to get to heaven. And therefore, they're not certain about going to heaven. If God gives you a promise that you can go to heaven, you place your faith in that work that God does so you can trust with confidence that you'll go to heaven or whatever the promise is. 
doing good works, you'll be chaos. You have faith in the promises of God because of the grace of God. You can be certain. Isn't that good news? You can be certain. Now, real quick, I want to talk about Paul's point at the end of the verse. Who needs the gospel message? Okay? Now, I know you can raise your hand and answer the question, but I'm going to do it because Paul does it. Here you go. Look in the middle of the verse. Not only to those who are of the law. Not only to those who are of the law. In other words, number one, the religious person. The religious person. The person who has morals. The person who would answer the question, I'm a good person. That religious person who believes they know certain things that God wants you to do and they try the best they can and they seem to do it 50 out of 50 times, you know, 50 out of 100 times, half the time, they do good things. Or let's go 51, 49, they do a little bit more good things than they do bad things. They think because of that, that they will earn their way to heaven. That's a religious person. The person who needs to understand that they place their faith in the grace of God to fulfill the promises of God needs the gospel message because they are not saved. They're believing in themselves to save themselves. And that will not work. <clears throat> There's no mention of faith here. So Paul's talking about a non-believer. He's talking about a non-believing Jew trying to live by the law. By the way, there's a, a Jewish writer, Abraham Herschel. He wrote in the newspaper in 1999. He said this, quote, Christians must abandon the idea that Jews must be converted. You Christians, stop preaching the gospel. He says, quote, one of the great, <laughs> the preaching of the gospel to a Jew is one of the greatest scandals in history. Why? Because Jews believe they can do good moral works because they have the law of God. And that's exactly who Paul's talking about in verse 16. He says, this person does not know the grace of God, does not have faith in God, does not understand the promises of God, and therefore doesn't have any of the three. And they need the gospel message. Who else needs the gospel message? Number two, the end of verse 16. But also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, who needs the gospel message? The non-religious person. The non-religious person. Now, I know you could have answered these, but Paul says it, so we're going to say it. The non-religious person who does not live by any morals, lives only to please himself, he needs to know about faith, the promises of God, and the grace of God. By the way, that'd be a good way to witness to somebody, to share with them those three things. Faith in God, the promises of God, and the grace of God. Then... You'll be able to communicate to a non-religious person 
that the solution to their life is the promise of God that's given because of the grace of God and is attained and grabbed onto by your faith in the promises of God. Just like who? Out loud, just like who? Abraham, who is the father of us all. In other words, we are all saved like Abraham by faith. Faith in the promises of God. Faith in the promises of God that God gave to us by grace. Now, after the cross, we look back and say, by the grace of God, the promise of God is that through Jesus Christ on the cross, he covered our sins. All we do is put our faith in the promise that his work will be effective, and we believe it because of the grace of God, and we are saved. We are saved. He's the father of us all. Now, verse 17. This is a good verse. We're going to slow down a bit, and we're going to take our time through this verse. As it is written, a father of many nations, I have made you. I have made you. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Okay, I thought I'd get a hand clap for that verse. That's a good verse. That's a really good verse. Let me read it to you again. Maybe I'll go a little bit slower, okay? Chew on these words. Here you go. It is written, A father of many nations have I made you, in the presence of him, talking about God the Father, whom he believed, Abraham believed God the Father, because God the Father gave him a promise, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Oh my goodness, we need to take a two-hour break. Have you come back after thinking about that verse? then I'd get some clapping or amens or something. First thing I want you to notice. What work does God do to make a sinner into a believer? What work does God do to make a sinner into a believer? Uh, I did a study, a Bible study on work of God that he does in salvation. I came up with 21 things that God does in order for you to be saved. 21. <clears throat> I took those 21 things and I put them into 14 categories because there were some of them were very similar to other ones, a little bit different, but very similar. So I came up with 14 things that God does in order for you to be saved. Now that's pretty good. Now, I want you to notice in this verse... He brings up four of them. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. Number one, God gives promises that he sees as already done. God gives promises <clears throat> that he sees as already done. Already done. Now, 
in my version of the English Bible. It's an Old Testament quote. They write it in capitals, so I know it's Old Testament quote. It comes from Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17, verse 5. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I will make you a father of multi, a multitude of nations. Ask me how old Abraham was when he got verse, the verse, chapter 17, verse 4. What, how old was he? Come on, ask, ask, ask. I don't know, but he was right around 80 years old, maybe 90 years old. Guess how many children he had? Zippo. None. God promised him, notice the, the verse, notice the writing. It does not say, will have a great nations or a multitude of nations. Or will in the future have a multitude of nations. God says in chapter 17 of Genesis, I've made you multitude of nations. God promises something before it happens as if it's already happened. And who can do that? Only God. Chapter 17. If you're in Genesis still, turn to Genesis 21. Genesis 21, verses 1 and 2, maybe 3 if you want to go there. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised, so that Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him, and they named him Isaac. Chapter 21. Now, from chapter 17 to chapter 21, it probably was about 10 years, Abraham is now 100 years old. That means Sarah is 90 years old. Normally, when do you give birth? Not at 90. Not at 90. And if you're a husband, you're sitting there, hey, Abraham, you know. No. He's old. She's old. You might even say she's as good as her womb as dead. But God, four chapters earlier, said, I'm going to have a multitude of nations come from you. God promises things as if they've happened already that will happen in the future. Now, let's take that for us. What does God do in our salvation that he promised many years before that occurs when we hear the gospel message and say yes to God? Turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know 
that God causes all things to work together for good for those who are love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God has a purpose for everyone. And the first thing he does in his purpose for you to be saved is a work that we call election. The God choosing, I can take you a number of passages, I won't, but God chooses you. And usually when God chooses you, he, he chooses you before the foundation of the world. In other words, the day before the world was created, he chose you. He chose you in the past as if it was done when you heard the gospel message that day you accepted Christ. So, you were saved based upon the election of God back before the world was created because it's his purpose and he works it out. And in the next verse, you see all the things he does, justifying you, uh, glorifying you, all that stuff he does, he works out through your salvation so that you are saved. In other words, God promises that God would work in your life because of before the foundation of the world, he chose you. Not 39th draft pick, number one draft pick. He chose you. And it wasn't until whenever it was that you heard the gospel message and turned to God in faith. You, pro you trusted in the promise of God's election and you believed because of the grace of God and you were saved. God saw what would happen to you, made a promise to you through election so that you would be saved on whatever day it was you were saved when you heard the gospel message. Isn't that great? Next part of verse 17. A father of many nations, I have made you. I have made you. Number two. In the presence of him who he believed. The presence of God whom the sinner believed. In other words, God gives promises that will be received by the sinner. They'll be received by the sinner. God gives promises that will be received by the sinner. So God made a promise of election before the foundation of the world so that you would, be, you would hear the gospel and be saved. And then God made the promise that you would receive that promise. You would trust that promise. <clears throat> the promise was given by God. And then the faith, then the justification occurs. And what happens here, you believe, is a verb. I think it's talking about saving faith. Aorist active. God works through your believing and you are saved. Now, some people think you live, you do moral good things to earn salvation. And if you try to do moral works good in, for salvation, what happens is, is that you uh, require to do something to be saved. It's all on you. 
Whereas believing requires you just to receive. Receive. Abraham had faith in the promise of God, and he received the promise because he had faith in the promise and work and power of God to do what he says. Now, what is that? What is that? That, for us, is what we call faith. Faith. John 6, 29 says, This is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. Jesus said, This is the work of God that you believe. In other words, God works in your life so you have faith. Acts 13, 48. As many as have been appointed to eternal life believe. In other words, if you have been elected in, before the history of the world, you will believe because it comes from the same God. Acts 14, 27. God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. In other words, God opens the door of faith and the Gentiles believe. Because of the work of election, at a point in time, you heard the gospel message and you believed. You had faith. You had faith. You accepted the promise of God. You accepted that God had the power to do it. You accepted that God loves you and gives you the grace and that you will do it. That according to God's plan, you heard the message on the day you heard it and you accepted it because God's plan is made by a person that's unchangeable and therefore the plan is unchangeable and it worked out. You were saved. Third thing, verse 17, who gives life to the dead, who gives life to the dead. Who is the one that gives life to the dead? How does the work of God do to make a sinner into a believer? Number three, God gives promises that will give, her, give the, the sinner new birth and change his life. God works to give you a new birth to make you from dead to living, and he will do it so that you are made alive. That you no longer will be dead. Now the example is with Abraham. And how were they dead? They couldn't bear children. They're a little bit too old for that. But God was able to make their dead organs into living organs so that they had Isaac in chapter 21. The Bible says, Jeremiah 10.10, 10, But the Lord is the true God. He's the living God and the everlasting King. He is the one that's alive. And he can give that life to anyone he wants. And Abraham and Sarah, he made it so they could produce children. Giving life brings up two ideas, at least in my mind. Abraham and Sarah. And then also I think about the resurrection. Jesus Christ on a cross, he's dead. <laughs> blood separates water and the blood. And he's dead, he's buried. And God is able to bring him back to life. 
By the way, why did God do that? Because he promised. How does God's power make us alive? Well, it says, the Bible says, we're dead in our sins. And God has the power to get us from that dead position by his grace so that we can trust the promises of God and be alive. I could go to verse after verse after verse talking about being alive. God is able to give life to dead things. Romans 6, 13, we'll just go there. But present yourself to God as those alive from the dead. Those alive from the dead. The people who are saved are people who are alive from the dead. (laughs) You know those zombie movies? You don't like them. I like them. Anyway, I watch them. Zombie movies, you know what? They're all dead people walking around like they're alive. Tomorrow when you go to work, a lot of people you'll be working with will be zombies. Yeah, they'll be walking around. They'll be acting like normal people. But spiritually inside, they're dead. And they need to be alive. And the only way to be alive is trusting the promises of God by the grace of God and your faith. And you can communicate that. My pastor preached about you on Sunday. That would be a good start for your conversation. Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37. One of the most mind-blowing chapters. Okay? God says, hey, talk to these bones in this valley. And all of these bones start getting back together to the body they were supposed to be back together. And God basically makes this army that was dead and their bones were lying there into a living army again. God has the power to make alive what was dead. The whole point of that is for us, really, I think, that God is the one that can make dead things alive. The zombies you live with tomorrow, the zombies at work with tomorrow, all of those zombies you'll meet on the golf course, all of them can be made alive tomorrow. All you got to do is tell them about the promises of God, their need to have faith in the grace of God. How does that work in your life? How does that work in salvation? What work does God do to make you alive? It's called regeneration. Regeneration. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. Regeneration is the idea of a new life being born again that occurs when you're saved. When you move from dead people to being alive people, you're called regeneration. He makes you alive. It means to make, to experience a complete change in your life. Can you imagine how you would be alive? Okay, I'm sorry. Let's say in the middle of the sermon, I die. And I'm laying here and you don't know if it's a joke or what. And you're, you're scared to come up and poke me because you think I may be dead. Now, the difference between me alive and me dead, hopefully will be a huge difference. Okay? I usually talk more alive than I do dead. I usually breathe more. 
Usually you can hear my heart ticking a little bit more. I will move my arms. I'll make fist pump when I'm alive. I won't do that when I'm dead, laying there. Probably not. You can tell the difference. When you are completely changed, the Bible calls it regeneration. You move from the dead to the living. You move from a sinner to a person who's declared righteous by God. Fourth, what work does God do to make sinners into believers? Number four, God gives promises that will change your future. God gives promises that will change your future. Look at the end of the verse. And calls into being that which does not exist. God will call into being that which does not exist. God will call into being what does not exist. <sighs> Whatever does not exist, God can call into being. Okay, there was one, 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 one movie that was kind of, was a black and white, I don't know, it was, a, it was an old movie, okay, and it has Jesus being a carpenter, and he's in the carpenter shop, it was just a, like a 30 second part of the movie, and he, he builds this, and he shows it to his dad, and he goes, dad goes, what is it? He says, I call it the table. A table? What good's a table? And it's a table sitting there, four legs. He says, well, in the future, it'll be a really big deal. Because God can call into existence what does not exist. God can call into existence what does not exist. Now, get this. There is part of the 21 things that God does for your salvation that is one of those things that he calls into existence, which you have not experienced yet, and you will, because of God's work of grace and the promises of God given to you. You want to know what it is? Yeah. Romans chapter 8, verse 30. These whom he predestined, he also called. By the way, Aristan's point in time seems to be past. He also called. Aristan's point in time seems to be past. He just also justified, past tense, seems to be past tense. These he justified, he also glorified. Glorified, tense, past, seems to be past the point in time in the past. Glorified. One of the things God does when you are saved is he glorifies you. And you, guess what, have not experienced the glorification yet. But you will. God will call into existence your glorification. Your glorification. This is the final step, it seems like, in your salvation. And, and when you pass away and you get your resurrected body, you will be in a glorified state for all eternity. And in this state, you will share in the glory of Jesus Christ. Ask me how that works. I don't know. But we'll find out. Because God will call into being something that does not exist now 
that it will exist in the future. Spiritually, now I am glorified. But in the future, I will spiritually and physically be glorified. God redeeming fallen sinners. This is his last work of salvation that will occur, and we will be glorified. It'll be God calling into existence something that does not exist. Your glorified self does not exist yet. But one day God will call it into existence. Why? Because God promised you. Well, how do we know God's promise is going to be true? Because his grace is the source of the promise. How do we know his grace is going to be able to fulfill that promise? Because he's able to call into existence something that does not exist yet. God is outstanding. These are just four things that God does in your work of salvation. We could spend more time and go through a whole list of 21 things. But God works through grace, through his promises, so that you would have faith and trust his promises because that's the source of God's grace to you. And when God gives his grace to you, he does not give you a little, you know, some of the recipes my wife gets, you got a pinch of salt. No, it's not that. It's a shovel full that God gives to you. A shovel full. God gives you a, a cement truck full. I mean, he gives you more grace, more promises than you deserve. Why? Because he loves you. God gives and keeps on giving and keeps on giving and keeps on giving. And he does so much that for you to try to do good moral things to earn his favor is stupid. Sorry, can I use that word in public? I'm sorry. Don't be stupid. <laughs> Trust the promises of God. By faith and the grace of God, and God will heap so many blessings upon you, you can't even handle it. He'll overwhelm you. Or you can keep on having chaos in your life. One theologian got uh, interviewed, and he gave this uh, quote. By the way, this theologian you would not agree with. Uh, you, would have, you would call him a, a bad theologian. You would call him an anti-theologian. You would not agree with him. Here you go. Let me, let me use his wrong definition and correct it. Here's his definition. Quote, Work is the effort of men and women to bring order out of chaos left behind because of original sin. Okay? He says, Work is the effort of men and women to bring order out of chaos left behind by original sin. Okay, there's a problem with that. Okay? First off, there's nothing you can do to deal with original sin. The work that is done is not by you. The work that is done is by Jesus Christ on a cross. That work completely takes care of your sin. And God wants you to believe the promise that Jesus Christ can do that. 
He wants you to believe the promise and then experience the grace of God by placing your faith in that promise. And then if you do that, God gives you a whole Bible full of promises that you can trust and believe because God is good and he loves you and he wants to heap upon you blessing after blessing after blessing. Dear friend, don't ever get depressed. Don't ever get discouraged because you, you should not ever be. The blessings of God way outweigh anything this world can do. If this world is treating you completely bad and evil, sorry, God will give you more blessings. He will satisfy you more than anything this life can do. Jesus is the answer. Let's pray. Father, I pray for the lives out here that are in chaos. I pray, Father, that you would stop them from trusting in their own works and their own efforts, and they're trying to do their own moral good works. I pray, Father, that you would change their heart to trust the promises of God that come by the grace of God so that they believe and trust your promises. I pray, Father, that you would be with them and you would help them make this change even today. I pray, Father, that you would help us who believe and trust in the promise you give. I pray, Father, that we would be thankful and praising for every promise you give to us and that we would be excited. We get up every morning dancing. We're so excited to see what you're going to do today and how you're going to bless us today. Because, Father, we're no longer dead. You've given us life. You've given us life, so much life, that it'll last eternally. Thank you, Father, that through the work of Jesus Christ, we can trust the promises of God. You are too good to us. We don't deserve your goodness, but you heap it upon us. It's overflowing. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Oh, fine. You want the application? <laughs> application. Will I trust the promises of God so that God gets the glory and I live convinced that God has done everything to secure my salvation and will also do all for my future? I will trust the promises of God so that God gets the glory and I live convinced in my faith that God has done everything to secure my salvation and will also do all that I need in my future. Amen. Amen.